Welcome to the Bonsai Wire podcast. Today, John Eads and I are going to interview Eric Schrader. Eric and I have known each other for many years doing bonsai in classes with Boon Mon and Kativi Part. And uh, we're going to hear from Eric about growing bonsai and who knows what else comes up along the way. Does that sound close anyway? Yeah, I think so. That, that's what I've got questions about. Yeah, Eric. That, sounds, that sounds great. Thanks for the welcome. Perfect. And I'm Jonas, by the way. Eric, tell us, how did you get started in bonsai? Uh, that's a good question. I think, you know, I was aware of bonsai when I was like a teenager because my dad uh, wanted to do bonsai but never quite managed it. <laughs> and then my my sister, who's four years older than me, went off to college and started doing ceramics. And she during breaks, she would bring back these things that uh, bonsai pots and give them to my dad and my dad didn't really know what to do with them. So I think that was my first exposure. Uh, and then it wasn't until about 2001, I think I went to the San Francisco flower and garden show at the cow palace and saw the, uh, bonsai society of San Francisco show with, uh, memorably a couple of trees from Tim Kong. Uh, and I guess it was the 2002 show because there were, uh, 9-11 memorials in the, in the exhibit uh, paired with trees. And, uh, I think from, from that point on, I was hooked. And the, the key thing or the key change I think in my mind was really that before that, I just thought of bonsai as miniature trees. Like I'm just trying to duplicate a tree in miniature. And I realized that a lot of the people that were exhibiting trees in that show were really creating art, not just miniatures. And by art, does that include uh, cooking utensils, action figures, and flags, or were you thinking of something else? Well, in Tim Kong's case, that came later. <laughs> he was a little bit more conservative back then. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Back then, I only remember seeing glasses of wine, um, Pulp Fiction, VCRs as display stands, stuff like that. I don't remember any of those. Oh, those were some old Baba shows, the Bay Area Bonsai Associates. He put together some just fantastic displays, made it fun to go every year. Yeah, he's a, he's a creative guy, that's for sure. Now, of uh, everyone I know in Bonsai, you are probably the absolute best example of, and I don't know where this started. You'll have to share this story. Eric has taken little tiny sticks and pots, just completely insignificant, not interesting trees, and if someone said, oh, that tree's no good, he kind of said, oh, yeah, well, watch this. And then after growing it on for 10 years, it all of a sudden looks like a fantastic tree. And I don't really know anyone that has repeated that process as much as you have in the garden. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like a challenge. And so when someone tells me that I can't do something and... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Then I'll I'll take that as a, a point of contention basically to see if I can do it. Um, but I mean, you know, after beginning to study with Boone, um, there were definitely some conversations around certain pieces of material where Boone said, you know, you shouldn't be working on this. This isn't worth your time. And some of those conversations led me to getting rid of material, um, starting black pines from seed instead of trying to find black pines and and correct them. Uh, but other conversations led me to just ignore Boone entirely and go off my own direction. So I, I have a privet that uh, Tim Kong helped me dig out of a hedge in San Jose at a house that was being demolished. And when I took it to Boone, 
he looked at it and he said, that's not worth your time. There's nothing interesting there. And I said, well, look at this, you know, there's four trunks and this one is, this one here is rotten and we could just cut off the other ones and, and use that one and grow a top on it. He's like, no, no, no you don't want to work with that. I was like, okay. So <laughs> I, I took it home and I cut off the other three trunks and kept the rotten one. And here we are 15 years later and it's actually a pretty nice bonsai. I think I actually exhibited it in the PID show. Maybe yeah, not that long ago. ago. Yeah, three, yep. four years ago. Fun. <clears throat> Did you ever take it back to him and say, well, look at this tree now? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I don't like to, I don't like to be rude to my teachers. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but I do, you know, there's a certain, uh, I think with any teacher, there's a certain, um, there's a certain point if you get past that point to a point where, where the teacher can see where the material is headed which is funny for me to say that the teacher, I have to show the teacher where the material is headed. But, um, but, you know, from my perspective, sometimes material, you know, there is some good feature about it uh, that you want to bring out. And people just think because they've been doing bonsai for a long time, you know, it's not worth your time. And sometimes it isn't and sometimes it is. But I think that um, taking that as a challenge, if you do have, as a bonsaiist, if you do have an idea that you, that you see, like you look at a tree and you see something that other people are not seeing that, you know, seeing that, you know, following that vision and seeing that at least to fruition or if not completely to fruition uh, is worth your time. If you think you can execute it. So one of the hardest things that I hear from students is how do you see something that's not there? In the case of the privet, it was really obvious there were some interesting features to work with, but it was going to be a very mm -hmm. long journey. Whereas when you're looking at a tree in a four-inch pot, there really isn't anything to see based on what's there. You kind of have to grow the features of interest, which you can then style around down the road. And so how is it that you were able to see things or do you even think about it like that? Because it's always seemed like it's obvious, you know what the next step's going to be. It's not always obvious. I think there's a couple of different scenarios. So that you, like you just mentioned two different scenarios. So the two scenarios are one, you have a piece of material where there is some inherent feature and you want to work with that feature in order to create a bonsai. And the other is you're starting with a piece of material that doesn't really have any inherent interest and you're trying to create a bonsai essentially from scratch or starting from that point and adding interest. So you know, the privet was kind of the first case where I had a feature that I liked, which was a rotted out piece of trunk, and I wanted to create a crown that accented or accentuated or framed that trunk um, to make it into a bonsai. So I think that's a case that's a little bit more straightforward. You might not know exactly where you want to put the branches, or you might not, you know, a, a beginner or a student in a workshop might not quite understand how to do it, but it's a relatively kind of you have a starting point essentially uh and i've done it with other trees um when i moved back from la in 2012 2013 uh, one of the first bonsai society of san francisco meetings that i went to was a was a tim kong tree styling rodeo i can't what do you iron 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 bonsai challenge that's what he called them <laughs> and uh he had a he had a group of uh I call them Westlake junipers. I actually don't know what the species is, but the club was invited to go out to Westlake to dig out this entire yard full of junipers. And so across multiple club members, the, in the, it, we ended up with like 50 of these 
you know, ground grown junipers of various size trunks, but basically with no foliage anywhere near where you would want it on the trunks. Like they just had, it's that foliage umbrella at the top and then, um, and then no live branching down uh, near the base. And they don't back bud the way some other junipers do. So, you know, in the program, they were cutting the junipers back and making gin and kind of trying to style them. And I, I took one of them. My son actually ended up winning one of them in the raffle. And uh, <laughs> so I took it home and, and just grafted it. You know, because the lower trunk I thought was interesting, but where the foliage was just it totally didn't work. So I took it as a point to use it for grafting practice. And I think I put like 12 grafts or something on it <laughs> up wow. and down the trunk just to just to practice grafting and see what would take. And I, I think I ended up getting like three grafts uh, to take. I kept the bottom one and basically turned it into an entire shohin crown. And then I reduced some more deadwood and um, killed off the upper ones to actually become gin to kind of create some small deadwood to go with the larger deadwood that was already there. Um, so I can post a pic, I have a picture of that, I think on my Instagram feed, uh, but we can try to post a picture of it if, if people want to see it. Yeah, that'd be great. I think, uh, yeah, we could probably put it in the, in the uh, heading somehow. So that'd be great. Uh, and then, you know, to the second part of Jonas's question, um, I think that the, you know, when you're trying to create something from scratch, you're working basically in a partnership with the tree and you have to do something to make the tree interesting. Otherwise the tree is just sort of going to be a tree. And so if there's no interest in the tree, the first thing I do is basically just throw a piece of wire on the trunk. And that would be the, the case for a two-year-old black pine seedling or for, you know, a six to 12 inch Shimpaku whip or something like that. Um, and then, you know, you just let the tree kind of do its thing for a little while. And then you come back and see what the result was and, and do it again. So I think <laughs> what you're doing is you're creating interesting movement. You're creating sort of interest in the tree. Um, and the more you do that, the more practice you give yourself in doing that. I think the more creative you can kind of get with it. The key creative thing, I think when creating trees from scratch is really to don't give up on a piece of material. And also for me, uh, doing things really early, I think is kind of the key thing. You don't want to wait. So even by the end of year two on a Japanese black pine seedling, for example, you're already limited in the type of movement and twist that you can get in the wood. So if you're trying to create a small tree, you're not going to be able to get the, the really subtle movement or undulation in that wood that you might want to in the first, you know, three, four inches of the trunk because it's already too big to bend at that, at that level. And the same thing is true for Shimpaku. Once the, once the Shimpaku reaches kind of pencil size, um, it can be too difficult to bend it or get a real twist in it. So I would encourage people to, if they're going to grow trees from scratch to start small. Uh, and if you're going to go big, uh, get the get the movement and twists and whatnot that you want in the lower trunk first, and then uh, go from there. I've got a couple of questions just around. Um, I, I think we're kind of like skirting around all the questions I had listed out, but uh, 
But let's let's talk a little bit more on the twisting side of it. So when you're doing sort of twisting, like um, I've started doing shimpaku twistings and and uh, black pine twistings, how do you like? What do you do to fight the natural tendency that we all have to do S curves and pigtails and C curves and like? Um, I just have a tendency to be a be a factory where I can put out a widget and then I can recreate that widget a thousand times. You know, like so. How do you like uh, back to the artist thing? How do you what do you do to really fight that? What are some things that you do to, to, yeah, to combat that? Yeah, that's a good question. Cause I actually find it hard sometimes to, to create, like if you have a hundred trees and you're trying to make every one of them just slightly different and you don't want to end up with any of those flat S curves or, or pigtails, um, it, it can be a challenge cause you just end up there by accident sometimes, even right, if you're, right even if you're consciously trying to avoid it. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that Boone taught me, I think that I was working on oak trees at the time, and he said, um, don't go down, left, up, right. Go up, down, left, right. Or uh. left, up, down. So that you're putting two bends in one plane and then two bends in another plane instead of, yeah. instead of a, you know, a bend and then a, you know, 90 degree orientation of that bend or however many degrees it is. Um, so that's a good sort of easy to remember pointer and it gets you away from the pigtail scenario. Right, right, right. But it also gives you a, a, like a slightly predictable uh, result if you actually follow it. Because uh-huh. <laughs> <Time>, like, <laughs> then you have like, you know, up, down, left, right, or left, right, up, down. Yeah. Um, and there's only so many different ways you can do that. So I would say uh, there's a, d- a bunch of different things. One, you you want to think about the radius of the curve that you're making. Yeah. So if you're making a curve, you don't want the radius of the curve to be constant. In other words, like it shouldn't look like a pigtail. It should look like a pigtail with a kink in it. And so you, you want that curve more like a Nautilus shell those curves get tighter as you go towards the center or bigger as you go towards the the outside. Um, So think about the radius of your, your curves changing and changing abruptly. Um, And then a good exercise that I think people can do is uh, to illustrate this kind of thing to themselves is actually take a a wire and wrap it around your finger to make a pigtail, then take that pigtail and kink it in different ways to until you come to a shape that, uh, is more interesting and doesn't look at all like a pigtail. In other words, if you Got if you it, pick yeah. a pigtail and you put like a 90 degree turn in it at one point, it doesn't really look like a pigtail anymore. So, and if you do that a couple of times, um, it it's even crazier looking. So I think those are good strategies for, for avoiding that kind of canned look that we're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Another strategy would just be don't plan to wire the trunk of your tree only one time. Mm, interesting. Um, it, don't assume that wiring the trunk and then taking the wire off is getting you a result that you'll like in the long term. So wire the tree, take the wire off, maybe let it, you know, and this is why I tell people to uh, do it when the tree is really young, really flexible take the wire off, look at what the bends look like, put another piece of wire on and 
bend it again. Go again, yeah. Do corrections, essentially. Uh, I want to back up a little bit, uh, just talking about quality control, because I think that they, you know, when we're working with really young stock, they, they have the infinite potential to be either terrible or to be amazing. Like, they, the you know, it's not set in stone yet. The It's just, it's something. But at some point, I think you have to, uh, we, you have to make the decision about, is this worth pursuing going forward? Or is this, is it not going to be worth my time? And especially like, you know, you talked about, it just became easier to grow another one from seed. I know, I know a number of growers that, that, make heavy cuts uh, as in destroy a lot of stock just because it's easier to grow another one from, from seed or from a cutting. So, so like at what point do you begin to make those decisions or, and and this would be a question for you too, Jonas, like what percentage of the starting material actually makes it onto the track? And then what percentage of that actually makes it into the hands of consumers? Jonas, do you want to do answer first <laughs> my answer is kind of depressing we actually talked about this in one of the other episodes so i'll be curious to hear what you've got to say about that we've both made cuts i know over the years okay so you know the the first batch of black pines that i did um i started with about 120 seedlings and um just for practical reasons, I pretty quickly cut that down to, I believe something around the 40 to 50 range. I didn't have a lot of money to spend on soil components and wasn't sure that what I was doing was actually going to work. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to basically burn up all those spaces in my yard, uh, for a full, uh, crop of 120 pine seeds or whatever, pine seedlings or whatever. So, Beyond that, uh, I I did a lot of different bending and combining uh, some certain different levels of root exposure into different compositions to see what would happen. Um, root exposed root is one of my favorite styles. Um, Got it. And there there definitely came a point where I looked at the material and I said, okay out of these say 50 trees that I have here in, in, I think they were in like 10 inch pond baskets, uh, probably 20 of them are just, they don't look that interesting to me. And that doesn't mean that they couldn't have been bonsai because they're growing in a pond basket, which means that they have good, you know, root systems. You shouldn't have water crossing roots or whatever, but it just meant that at that point I was like, okay, I'm I'm still not sure exactly what the result is going to be here. Uh, and in retrospect, I wish I had kept them, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I looked at them and I said, okay, I'm just going to cut back. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with a smaller batch here. And so basically at multiple points, I was either giving away or selling, um, the least interesting trees from trees from the batch. So I don't think that there's to your question, I don't think that there's necessarily like a drop dead point where you're sort of like, I'm done. But that said, you know, I think the mistake that people make with growing trees uh, is assuming that once they've done wiring on the trunk initially, that they can just put it in the ground or put it in a big container and leave it alone for five years. Cause right, right, we're just right. going to grow the trunk out. 
And that results in what you're talking about, which is like, oops, I have to make this giant trunk chop. Trunk chop, that, right. That I hadn't anticipated making. So your your plan for growing the material really should be start to finish a little bit more detailed than, okay, I'm going to wire the trunk and then I'm going to grow it out and then I'm going to cut it back and make some branches. Yeah, like, yeah. That's not enough detail in your plan to, to really get to the finish line. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a tendency I've seen in myself just in the tiny amount of time I'm doing it is that like, I don't make the, like I need to be making cuts simply based on like time and energy, maybe not even based on aesthetics so much, but, but if you were to go with those 150 seedlings, then you're, then you're watering and wiring and cutting 150 instead of the ultimately 30. So maybe, maybe the, potential of the whole batch is being wasted because you're, you know, having to focus on so many and you're, you know, having to work quick or things get out of control. So yeah, it's kind of like the balancing game of, um, you know, time and energy and trying to figure out that side of it. I think one of the techniques that I've used that I think can be really successful in growing bonsai material is to, it's the kind of hybrid approach of, growing out a single large sacrifice or multiple large sacrifice branches, but at the same time, maintaining some branches, very small and short. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, on a, on a two or three year old black pine, I'll decandle the small buds that are down near the base, uh, assuming that they're vigorous enough to decandle uh, while simultaneously leaving the main sacrifice branch in place. That makes the, those small buds pretty weak and you have to be careful that they don't get shaded out in the case of the pines. Um, but what, what it also does is it keeps that growth really tight to the trunk Got so it. that instead of trying to chase it back, you're then growing out small branches to the size you want instead of cutting off branches that are too big uh, and trying to, to get a bud from the base of the branch or, the, or doing grafts or whatever. And how do you how do you work to fight the tree's tendency to just say, "Well, screw that! If you're going to mess with those down there, I'm going to just grow the leader." Like, do you do you find some species that will just abandon that weaker growth, or like how do you fight that? Because I know that sometimes the you know the apical dominant trees will just run their runners hard and and abandon that lower stuff. Yeah, so I think in the case of you know, batches of black pine in, in many cases, say I did that decandling of the low weak growth in mid June here in, in San Francisco, if I'm not seeing a, a reaction to that cut, if I'm not seeing buds forming three weeks later, I'll go ahead and cut off some portion of the sacrifice branch to force, uh, to remove some of that hormone inhibition that's going yeah, on. Yeah. Okay. And simultaneously just ensure that the the lower branching is not shaded in any way. Right. Okay. So those two things seem to be the kind of, at least on a black pine seem to be the throttle for that lower interior growth. You just don't let it get shaded. And if it looks like it's weak, don't hesitate to cut off part of the sacrifice branch because you have to remember the sacrifice branch is going to be the strongest part, even if you cut it back. So like if you decandle half the sacrifice branch, it's going to pop out stronger than those little buds down at the bottom anyway. Right, so it's not right. like you're, you're, you know, backing off the throttle on the wood production overall, but you're also furthering your goal instead of just letting the tree do what it wants. 
Uh huh. Sure. Um, yeah. And so let's back up a little bit. Cause I, sorry, I, I haven't really followed you all that much. I, I've looked at your blog and stuff, but how much of your time right now is dedicated to growing or bonsai or do you, you know, do other, do other things on the side or is this, or is the bonsai the side job? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing bonsai and right now I have, um, you know, for the last few years I had kind of dialed back on a lot of the growing that I was doing. I live in San Francisco and I have about a 600 square foot uh, backyard Got that, it. that did contain uh, all of the trees that I was growing, whether that's seedlings or whatnot. Um, and all of the more mature stuff that I started 15 years ago and, a few, you know, collected trees from going up to the mountains or purchase trees and that kind of stuff. So, um, and I, you know, I've been working a, a full-time corporate job during most of that time. Prior to the corporate job, I had been a, an independent contractor for a textbook publisher. Got it. Um, so that kind of put a damper on my, my uh, ability to do growing. Uh, but for the last year, I, I've been putting more effort into it and I have a, a much larger batch of material that I'm now working with. Um, to the point where it's getting challenging to balance time between work and family and all, uh -huh. <laughs> all, of, the, all of the little trees. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, okay, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, so in, in artist circles, a lot of times we talk about, uh, back to the quality control issue really, uh, and what do you do with, with what you might consider seconds or thirds or the burn pile. Um, I heard a real, I, in college I did pottery and then tried to try to make a go of it for a few years uh, as a potter. And there was a funny little story going around where a potter had passed away and another potter couple decided to, um, they were looking at the property because it had a really nice kiln and a really nice area and it had a, a creek running through the property with a dam that made a nice little pond. So anyway, they bought the property and they wanted to excavate the, the dam to, to keep the river or the stream going. So they dug up the dam and they realized that the dam was entirely made of pots that the potter was frustrated with. He didn't like, and he threw into the, the creek and over years and years and years of shards, it finally dammed up the creek and made a pond. Um, you know, so obviously making decisions about what uh, should what the world should see and what it shouldn't see. So, you know, as you're making your cuts, how do you how do you fight the need for the, the need that people have to get material into their hands because there seems to be a lack of material? But then on the other hand, this this second tree or garbage tree, you know, you don't want to be associated with, Oh, this is, Oh, that was an Eric tree. You know, look at this, look at the work that Eric did. You know, how do you, so how do you balance that, you know, need to get material out, but also, you know, wanting to keep quality high or your, you know, good reputation sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, fortunately, I think in bonsai, we're not quite as rigid uh, with the, with the result as uh, with ceramics. I mean, once you, once you have a result with ceramics, that's the result and it's sure. hard to change it. Uh, I think in bonsai, many times what actually happens is that you, you come to a point and then you have to make a decision that will essentially set you back years. 
And it's not that you, it's not that you've created a product that is finished and it's never going to be any better than it is right now. It's that you've created something that, or you made a mistake or something like that. And it's cost you two years or it's cost you right, three years right. in order to correct that flaw in the, in, in the material. That's not always the case. There's definitely material out there, uh, but that, you know, that has flaws that are not worth correcting, not because they can't be corrected, but because it would take so long to overcome the flaws that, that it's better to start from scratch, which, you know, was Boone's advice to me when I was bringing him a couple of black pines with roots that twisted right around the base of the trunk. <laughs> right, right. Girdled the trunk. Yeah, they had big vertical chops and, and you know, people were trying to carve them or whatever to, to hide it. Um, so I think with bonsai, you know, it's, it's easy to, to kind of always have a hope that the material is going to get better as you continue working with it. But that said, there definitely is a point where you have to say, okay, this is not good enough. And at one point with the, the kind of cast off, so to speak, uh, my <clears throat> lower half of material, I would just kind of give it away. You know, I donated a lot to uh, the, the various auctions that clubs do right, to raise right. funds for, for putting on programs. And it wasn't a recognizable finished product. It was just, you know, a pine tree in a, in a basket. So people know where it came from, but it's not like they're judging me as an artist based on, <laughs> sure. based on my cast off. But anymore, I, there have been multiple times where I've sold pieces of material at, you know, pretty low prices to people because I didn't want that material anymore. And then that material comes back to me for additional work and, and teaching. And I'm like, wait, no, I, I wanted to get rid of this material because it's not that good. Right. You need to have people like sign it. a disclaimer. When, you, when this so, leaves the property, <laughs> call Jonas. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Jonas feels the same way. So like, it sounds terrible. And I think to the beginner, it's, um, it's something that, that doesn't, it's hard to understand. But for me, sometimes it's better to, to literally green bin things than to give it to one of your students. Um, so that, you know, that green bin might be full of my, uh, my shards of pottery. And luckily, uh, not right. damn is it disingenuous to the beginner to put material in their hands that doesn't have potential? You know, that's, it's such a, it's such a hard thing for me because I would say, you know, just get material out there. But then at the same time, like if, if this tree is, has roots that are girdling the base or if it's got some, some flaw that you can't stomach yourself, like, it's hard to know if it's being, you know, ultimately hurtful to people to get material into their hands that actually isn't going to, to do anything for them, you know. And how much do we want the barrier? What do we want the barrier to entry to look like? In other words, right. if you're only growing nines and tens, are you saying that to be a beginner in bonsai, you have no right to start a tree that's worth less than $400? Right, right. I think that there's a, there is a use for some of the it will call it inferior material. Um, and that is that you can learn things from working on a tree, even if that tree is never really going to be a great tree. So you can, you can learn how to keep a tree healthy, uh, or maybe you can learn how to get a tree healthy. If you've, you know, if you've gotten a tree from a, a club raffle or something, 
Um, so that is a really valuable lesson. It allows people to just sort of hone their horticulture skills. And then the other thing is that like people have to have hands-on experience in order right. to learn how to wire. Wire. So yeah. if I, and I think it's all the better if you're going to mangle a tree, that it not be a really good tree. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think if anything, we should be doubling down on teaching people to recognize quality on their own, to be better shoppers and to show more discretion when they're building their own collections. I think when another I'm, way to think uh, about it is that a, a lot of people, when they get into bonsai, they are thinking about taking a piece of material and using it to... To, as refinement, they're, they're looking to use refinement techniques to turn that piece of material into like a show quality bonsai or, or a finished bonsai, quote unquote. And this kind of circles back to one of the first questions that we were talking about, which is how I took material that, you know, was kind of out there in terms of quality and, and actually turned it into a, a bonsai tree. And I think the set of techniques that people are really missing and that, that gap in the middle can be that you're not actually just applying refinement techniques to these trees. You might have to apply growing techniques to the trees. Mm. You might need to create another section of trunk. You might need to create another trunk, you, you know, whatever the scenario is that, that makes that material a better piece of material. In many cases, it's very possible. Maybe that piece of material is destined to be part of a great forest and you just need to find the other four trees that go with it. Yeah. You know, so it, right, it's right. the material itself usually isn't so flawed that it has zero use, but people need to recognize that just putting a pretty crown on every piece of material is not necessarily going to be the best result. Mm -hmm. uh, switching gears a little bit. Uh, what, what is the variety that you enjoy growing the most? What do you keep going back to? You know, it, it actually, it shifts from, from one variety to another, but you're right. I do go back to things. Um, I, I really enjoy black pine and ever, ever from the time, like from ever since I first picked it up, I've, I've enjoyed it. There's a lot of different characteristics. And one of the key characteristics I think is the, is the way that the roots behave. Uh, being able to create an exposed root tree is something that I find really, really interesting, whether that's, you know, pure exposed root or root over rock um, or some somewhere in between, I don't know. Um, I, I look to try to capture what the tree's doing underneath what was originally the soil line a little bit more than I think some other people do. So black pine really works well for that. I haven't, um, I haven't explored tropical species so much that that can do the same thing but it's something that i would like to get into and uh, the other species that i find myself fascinated with is one that a lot of other people find fascinating as well and that's just kishu shimpaku um, it's so fun to just kind of create those compact little clouds and, uh -huh. and it's just really rewarding once you learn how to contain it and refine it um, to be able to create such a tight controllable shape in the in the crown yeah fascinating and do you do you find you like kishu better than itoagawa i've had a lot more exposure to it um and i think for my particular local climate kishu is better 
I think in hotter climates, Itoigawa maybe is a little bit better because Kishu gets a little bit too coarse. But yeah. for the for the particular climate here in San Francisco, Itoigawa seems to be a little bit weak and Kishu seems to grow perfectly well. And I think that's probably why I gravitated towards towards got Kishu. It, got it. Yeah, we tend to grow Itoigawa, but uh, we do have a few Kishu in the yard. Um, you have against Kishu up in Portland. Well, in Japan, uh, my impression is in Japan that they typically use Kishu only on big trees. And um, so most of our trees fall into the small to medium size. So we typically use Itoagawa. And uh, yeah, I think the impression is you can get a tighter, finer uh, like pad on a Itoagawa. It's just a little finer than the Kishu here, at least. Or maybe it's just the varieties we use, but try taking a uh, try taking a kishu and putting it like within a, a few blocks of the ocean. You'll you'll see some broccoli uh -huh. pretty soon. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I do also see a little more scale uh, with the kishu. We get a little more scale and a little more fungus disease, um, and I think that's just because the the foliage is it's. Uh, it's not finer, tighter, but but there's more foliage per square inch uh, with the Kishu, at least the ones that we're growing. So they tend is to have aphid problems and scale problems. Is the scale you're getting the tiny white scale? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And keeping yeah. the tree thin is the absolute best way to avoid that. If you let the foliage get heavy, it's almost right. guaranteed around here that you'll have the scale. Yeah, right. And so the, the, the Itoagawa doesn't tend to get heavy enough to be a problem even just letting a stock plant go crazy. But here, letting a, letting a Kishu stock plant go crazy, we almost always run into problems because they get so dense, you know. So, yeah, we typically tend to graft with uh, Toagawa and use a Toagawa in the yard. But but I do like them both. Uh, I like the color of the Kishu. It's just it's strikingly different than the Toagawa. But um, kind of on that um, variety, what you loved growing, is there anything that you like just from an artist perspective, is there anything that you really enjoy growing, but, but it doesn't really have like have a market value in a sense, or like, is there really, is, is there something in the bonsai yard that you love doing, but it's just for the love of it? You know what I'm saying? Mm. I mean, there's definitely species that don't seem to have uh, much there's not much of a market for them that I like working with. I think in Cal, <clears throat> I came from the perspective that I wanted to grow California natives. Okay. And I only came to Japanese and Chinese species after I joined a club and, and there was such a, a tradition and sort of history of growing those species. So when I first started on my own, I was looking at oak trees mostly. Uh, I started in 2005, a, pretty large batch of valley oaks, Quercus uh, lobata, and from acorn. And I still have five of those that are now pretty much all bonsai. And three of them are planted in raised boxes in my front yard, and two of them are actually in bonsai pots. Um, but nobody seems to pay much attention to them as bonsai. Uh -huh. Granted, the leaves are pretty big. Um, so it, but in... In winter, the silhouettes can be really nice. And if they get enough heat in the summer, they actually grow pretty well. 
that doesn't happen here in the city really. So I've variously had the, the two that are in containers, either at Jonas's house in Alameda, which is a little bit hotter, um, or I actually had them up at Peter T's for an entire summer because they were, seemed like they were getting kind of weak and they took off uh, while they were at his place because it stays really hot up there. Got it, got it. Yeah, we grow a couple of uh, local natives in our yard here that um, just unfortunately don't grow too much out of the out of the region. The mountain hemlock is one. Absolutely beautiful trees. I wish that we could propagate them and grow them or collect them and grow them and sell them all over the country because they're such beautiful trees. But there's just this tiny sliver, you know, from Alaska to Southern Oregon that they grow in and they really don't, we, yeah, they, we haven't seen that they will grow well outside of that region. So it's one of those local, local favorites that we use, but. One of the other California natives that I started a long time ago were uh, Monterey Cypress. And I actually remember having some conversations with Boone about it at the time because you know, Bob Scheinman's been collecting the Mendocino pygmy cypresses for some time. And I think that a lot of people have found it pretty challenging to create convincing cypress bonsai from them mm. over the years. And I think that's, that's kind of starting to come around uh, in terms of actually mimicking some of the trees, the forms of Monterey cypresses that you see at places like Point Lobos or in other parts of Monterey. Um, but I, you know, I started a big batch of Monterey cypresses and I still have four or five of them in my yard. And those are, I find them really interesting. They grow really quickly here in our climate, much more quickly than a juniper. But in the end, they look, the foliage looks kind of like a juniper. Actually, it looks almost identical to a juniper oh. in the case of the Monterey's. And so a lot of people don't find them to be that compelling because because basically if it looks like a juniper, then why don't you just, grow why don't you just grow a juniper? Right. <laughs> right. So in my mind, the key difference is that uh, it's only the young trees that really look like a juniper. And once you actually get some, once you actually get some good branch structure and movement in there that looks like a cypress, then you have a cypress and it doesn't look like a juniper. You, you know, cypresses have ascending branches. There's nothing. Well, there's the odd exception here and there, but, um, for the most part, all the branches, they wiggle up, left, right. You know, they make these sort of really interesting wiggly ascending shapes. And then you have most, almost all of the foliage right at the top. And it can make it, you know, some really beautiful uh, compositions, but it's an entirely different set of techniques. And I, I had to, I don't want to say I had to, no, I had to pioneer the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the you know the idea that you're not bringing the branches down it's interesting because bringing branches up aesthetically accomplishes the same thing as bringing branches down in a way when you're when you have branches straight out and michael talks about this when he lectures sometimes when you bring when you have branches that are going straight out they look longer than if you bring them down when you bring them right. down the branches look shorter you move the foliage closer to the center of the composition and the same thing is true for bringing the branches up if you bring the branch up you're moving that foliage closer in to the center of the composition exactly the same way or maybe exactly the opposite way. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you're accomplishing the goal of keeping it tied in. Yeah. Yeah. So, so whenever I work with cypresses, I am aiming to mimic that natural style that you see from the trees from Point Lobos and, and have ascending branches, lots of 
lots of dead branches, uh, especially on the, lo the lower branches are almost always all dead. Uh, got it, got it. Yeah. I've, I've tried working with a lot of other species and for a variety of reasons, California native species, I should say, for a variety of reasons, just found them to be not, not quite as interesting. Like scrub oaks, I just, I have a little shoheen scrub oak and I love it, but um, on the whole, they're really difficult to work with. And yeah, just, yeah. Uh, you know, I had one uh, that I grew from a, a little seedling and it got kind of a little bit too big and I decided, okay, I'm just going to cut these, all these branches back and force it to, to back bud. And every one of the branches I cut back just died. Gave up. <laughs> except, for, except for one that shot out this giant spike of foliage that it, over the course of about three months was, I don't know, three or four feet tall. And I'm looking at it like, what in the world are you doing? That just does not make any sense. That's when you go out on a collecting trip and take that tree with you and dig it back into the forest. That was one of the most resounding failures of uh, growing from scratch that I, that I can recall. <laughs> Where's that tree now? Uh, I still have it in the yard. I'm like, I, I, every time I look at it, I think to myself, well, what? what could I do to this tree now to make it, to make it look like a, a scrub oak bonsai, but it's, I'm not sure. I haven't come up with anything yet. Yeah. I might need to find the green bin. You know, you might need to. <laughs> that one's close. That one's close. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Redwood's actually been, I think maybe as of 20 years ago, it wasn't considered a very good species and, you know, Bob Scheinman collecting and selling them to everyone is sort of right. proven that, that it actually is a really nice species to work with. But I think that, you know, the particular techniques that you use with it are still, um, people have different opinions about how do you refine a redwood. Some people think that they have the entire thing figured out and then they go and, you know, change climates or move a hundred miles away and all of a sudden the whole, the ball game changes. So um, it's it's been interesting to see, you know, here in San Francisco, there's quite a few different people growing them and the, the techniques that they use are just run the gamut. And the, the finished result that they get also can be completely different from one another. So Gary Tom, uh, a longtime bonsai grower here in the city has a kind of a, about a 12 inch size one that has just incredibly compact detailed branching in it. And so mm. I when I saw it, I got into a conversation with him about it and I said, you know, well, how did you, how did you keep it that tight? He's like, well, I just pinch it. I was like, uh, interesting. It's like, Oh, I'm still overcoming my, my lessons from Boone never to pinch anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this tree looks like a dwarf Hinoki from a few feet away. It is so tight. Redwood would not oh, be wow. the typical first guess. Amazing. But it's, it's, it's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's kind of great people, uh, you know, del developing new techniques for uh, all these interesting species that we have. I, I, I'm really excited about the, yeah, the work people are doing with natives. Drop some names here on some people that really inspire you. Like what, um, who inspires you in the, in the bonsai world? You know, my, <laughs> this is going to be, what's the guy's, what's the guy's name, Jonas, that you and, I'm not going to get it right, that you and Dylan visited in Japan? Onuma. Onuma? Yeah. The, the, with the boar meat, was it? Yes, yes. 
Oh, is this the exposed route where they let the, uh, I think that was this the Chochabai where they let the soil wear away. Yeah. 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 Those are inspiring pictures. So he popped up on, he popped up on Instagram, maybe, I don't know, four or five months ago. And he posted all these videos of his yard. And then it wasn't, it was pretty soon after that, that Jonas and Dylan ended up visiting his place. Um, when they were over there, I think for Kokofu. Um, and I have been going back and looking at those pictures on his Instagram feed over and over and over again, because there's so many different techniques that he's using that I find to be kind of related to things that Jonas and I have been doing, but also entirely different. So the whole idea of nesting colanders one on top of the other, when I grew my initial batch of black pines, I nested colanders, well actually pond baskets, so you know square pond baskets and larger square pond baskets, but I I buried them. I so the smaller basket was bare entirely buried. Oh got it, right, right. In the in not entirely. You could only see like, you know, a half inch the rim essentially. Uh, and then there was soil inside and soil inside the larger container outside the smaller one. Um, but he stacks them. So uh-huh. you, you're just taking you're making like this tower of, of containers that are all mesh. And I think I've, the biggest tower I saw was maybe five separate containers. Wow. <laughs> um, so I, you know, when I think about that from with my experience growing, what, what I think about is that he's allowing, he's simultaneously allowing all of the roots to really just go nuts and, and run kind of as far as they want as if they're in the ground and forcing them to backbud at various stages and not go laterally. Right, so right. Creating very fine lateral roots and more coarse vertical roots, but all of them are being forced to backbud so that, um, you know, through air printing, so that, so that you're still having a pretty refined root structure. Yeah. Um, so I, I really want to get into experimenting with that and I think uh, there's already some discussion, various people talking about the, also the aspect of using pure uh, washed sifted lava uh, as a substrate, which is what he uses. No Akadama, no pumice, nothing oh, else. Wow. Washed sifted lava. Um, so I don't like carrying washed sifted lava around. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure that that's going to be the first thing I try, but um I definitely find him inspiring. Yeah. Wow. Great. Yeah. And you know, when the, when the pots are deeply nested, in, uh, the colanders are deeply nested in each other, then you have a hell of a time getting the, getting it all disentangled. But when they're just stacked on each other, you can just scythe the, <laughs> you know, the layers apart. If you're, you know, when you're ready to repot. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to the bonsai today, 20 article on black pine colander growing, which I think is, famous or infamous at this point. Uh, right. But the drawings definitely show the colanders buried with buried each in, other. Yeah. yeah, they're not stacked. But I mean, it's a, you know, why not? Why not stack them? Other right. than it seems like they might blow over or something. <laughs> yeah, some of those, some of the photos that Jonas had were these precarious stacks of trees, you know, this little tuft of foliage on top of the stack of colanders. 
pretty great. And they're both common techniques in Japan. Um, Onuma started getting attention quite a while ago. There was an article about him in uh, Kinde Bonsai magazine, and that got a lot of people's attention since he was getting such amazing results with these quirky trees using techniques that at least we didn't get to see that often. And, you know, whether it was the soil or his pruning techniques or the darn stacked colanders, um, that had been recommended to me by Daisaku years and years ago when I was threatening to put trees in the ground. And Daisaku kept saying things like, well, if it's in the ground, do you think you'll find the best front for that tree? If it's in the ground, do you think you'll wire it as well as if it was in a pot? it's in the ground do you think you take the wire off the day it starts cutting in and he just kept supposedly <laughs> innocently asking me all these questions the very obvious answer being no to every one of them and he said oh just stack the colander on top of another pot on top of another colander and so a lot of the japanese pine growing books will show colanders on top of clay pots or what daisaku recommended for me is just a big old plastic pot underneath and so i had done that stacking technique in a very limited fashion and it's still pretty rough to tear it all apart at repotting time, but it's a fantastic alternative to get pretty vigorous growth without uh, resorting to dropping something in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, Eric, you were talking about the, the exposed root black pines. And I think the most inspiring pictures from Jonas's blog on Anoma's garden was the little chochabai that had been allowed to erode the soil eroded and then created this crazy monster of roots that, this weird exposed root chochabai. It's like, whoa, that is crazy idea. <laughs> yeah, and I had seen similar trees similar to that in shows in Japan. And I think we actually have a few imported ones here in the US, maybe before the import ban started. Um, and I always found them kind of interesting, but I never really understood like well, what were, you know, what exactly are the techniques that that lead to this result and how would you, you know, how would you go about replicating it? Um, so it was interesting. It was really interesting to see those eroding piles of soil. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you think about ero using erosion as a tool for creating bonsai, um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating idea. You know, it's right, like, right. And an exposed root using erosion to sort of like organically allow an exposed root to cope with, you know, the the, the lowering the ever lowering level of the actual functional soil uh is kind of a fascinating fascinating idea yeah right it's similar to like wiring something out versus uh you know cutting you know it's a little more organic to just let it erode than to like get in there and manipulate manually you know just like letting kind of nature do its thing but sometimes you don't know what you're going to get when you <laughs> you know when you, when you let nature take its course well, I've ended up with plenty of exposed root black pines that I didn't like because I didn't get in there and bend little, you know, straight sections or correct reverse taper, you know, because the if the if the trunk is made up of roots and your roots all of a sudden all go together, then you really need to shove a chopstick or something in there or, or spread them apart so that you get that visual, uh, cleaner visual. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's very hard to grow exposed roots into the precise shape you want to end up with. I've done it before. I don't know how it happened, but more and more I find myself exposing the roots much earlier than I want to, tweaking and adjusting them so they end up where I want. And then I actually kind of cover them up again to help them thicken up faster for another four or five years. Got it. Got it. So yeah, so some root rearrangement in addition. 
not just letting them do what they want, but, but getting in there and messing with them. And then when you're all done, you can still grab the whole thing and twist it and bend it and do something fun with it. Hmm. And I think we've all done that. I did a program for the club in Austin uh, right before COVID started. And uh, we talked about that process, you know, growing the roots out, exposing the roots and then manipulating the roots. And then after the manipulation, you know, growing the tree like more to fatten up the roots until you get to the point where you like the aesthetic of them. And I published an article on my blog basically with the same information three or four months ago. Got it. And so do you typically like uh, dig in there every once in a while to see the progress and then at some point you call it good to go or how, you know, how do you make a determination since the, since the roots are, are buried again? No, I don't, uh, unless I've exposed them really prematurely, I don't usually rebury roots. Uh, so say you have a, one of the standard techniques I use is just to cut the bottom off a one gallon can and stack it on top of a pond basket Got and it. then tie the two of them together, plant the tree, um, put bonsai soil on the bottom, like a coarse something in the in the three quarters of the height of that one gallon can like lava or really coarse pumice or anything you can find um and then you know just a thin layer of bonsai soil right at the top to plant the seedling in and then you let the roots run down through that through that coarse material and that gives them that gives them shape and then once you verify, like, I mean, with a pond basket, you can pick it up and sort of like look underneath it and, and look at the, look at the roots poking out. And once there's a certain volume, then you can actually just start, you know, cutting inch wide strips off of that, uh, that gallon can, uh, maybe like once a month, cut an inch off of it, let the soil erode away as we were talking about with the chojibai and, um, and the tree just sort of adjusts to it. But I've also exposed it all at once. Uh, and very rarely do I bury them again. Got it. Mm. You so do, you're sl- slowly exposing it down to the pond basket and then yeah. letting that be the new soil. You do end up with some root die off usually. Like you won't end up, the faster you expose it, essentially, the more roots that you have die off. Right, right. So you tend to get more down the road, you tend to get more fewer large roots if you expose it quickly or more small roots if you expose it more slowly. Got it. Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. What, um, what's one piece of advice that you would give to someone that's starting out, um, and maybe starting out growing, what, um, what are, what's a, some little pieces of wisdom that you've learned that, that you wish you would have told yourself years ago uh, when you were starting out growing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've tried to give my, my 20 years ago self some advice a couple of times, <laughs> um, you know, just like kind of posting the answer to that question in a blog post or whatever. I did a I did an article for the Bonsai Society of San Francisco that was titled something like what your collection would look like if it were up to me. And um, basically the point of the article was to say, don't assume that you can grow 
a tree from scratch and that 10 years from now you'll be happy with what you created. You should try right now, start some seeds, you know, start some cuttings and, and go through all of the steps, but also go buy some trees that you like. Like just go buy a tree that you, that is already refined is that, you know, that you find to be aesthetically pleasing, whether that's a, you know, tall, skinny, literati type thing or a short fat black pine or whatever it is that, that uh, is your favorite thing and work with both at the same time. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, but you can't learn refinement techniques if you're growing seedlings. So do you want to spend 10 years growing seedlings and then start learning refinement right, right. techniques? Or do you want to learn refinement techniques while you're simultaneously growing uh, a bunch of seedlings that you'll eventually be able to refine? And what are the odds you'll develop an aesthetic sensibility that's appropriate for that refinement work when you're developing a tree in early stages if you've never done that refinement before? It's so cart before the horse to try to build a beautiful trunk and branch structure before you've ever worked with branches and refinement. Uh-huh. Sure, sure. And the other, the other piece of the, another piece of advice would just be don't assume that the trunk that you get, like if, you're, if you go out and you buy a trunk, in other words, you're, you're buying a piece of sort of bonsai material that was grown by someone who is selling it as bonsai, but it's not a refined tree. It doesn't have, you know, good branches or a full crown or anything like that. So you're just buying it because you wanted the trunk. Don't assume that you just get to start the refinement process on that trunk without any growing. Um, I think Jonas and I both do a lot of sort of in-between work where what you're doing is you're starting the refinement on certain parts of the tree while growing out other parts of the tree. And one of the biggest uh, things that we see is basically that someone's made a giant trunk chop. And then the thing that's above the trunk chop is not big enough to, oh, be, sure. to be the next section of the tree. The taper is not correct. So you should very carefully look at the taper of trunks that you're buying and if it has really good taper, it's going to be more expensive typically if the person knows what they're selling. And if it doesn't have good taper, you're going to be spending quite a few years creating that good taper. Mm. Yeah. Most 10 year old trunks that I've bought require 10 to 15 years of fixing. And it begs the question, yeah, do you want to spend 10 to 12 years growing an amazing tree from scratch or buy this big, huge, beautiful trunk and then spend another decade finishing the job of the grower by putting an apex on it, closing some of those scars, um, grafting some of those branches in place. So I know, John, you're thinking about growing at some point. So hint, hint, if you make some of those cuts along the way, you can be saving years and years off the back end of the process. Right, right, right. Yeah, so Eric, more uh, more to that point, um, seeing as that my hope is to grow trees, um, what what advice would you have for someone doing it on a commercial scale um, or a semi-commercial scale? Um, yeah, what thoughts would you have? What what advice could you give to me in that sense? Different than like you might give to a collector or a, a hobbyist. Um, that's an interesting question. I you know so my background is really mostly as a hobbyist um, and I've never uh, up to this point tried to do things on a commercial scale. <clears throat> so when you say commercial scale, are you talking about 
I want to sell a hundred trees a year. I want to sell a thousand trees a year, or I want to sell 5,000 trees a year. How many trees do you consider to be a commercial scale? Well, I think, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think that it, for me, it means that I'm dedicating most of my time doing it. So I haven't really nailed down what the number of trees looks like, but it, I think my idea is to grow trees that are more ready than some of the rough stock you can get a hold of and maybe mm-hmm. even refined fairly far so mm-hmm. that there would be a range of a range of people that would buy it that you know want to take it from not quality 0 to 10 but but doneness 0 to 10 you know there would be some options to buy it at a 3 where it's just fairly rough but then there might be an option to buy it at a 5 or 6 or 7 you know and so at some point I imagine I'll be starting by selling a lot of really younger rougher stock but then I think I want to eventually refine once I have you know more refined trees I want to sell them in a more and more like refined state yeah so so regarding commercial quote I think it means that that's what I'm doing with my life I don't know I, I don't, uh, I don't plan on selling. Yeah. I don't, I don't plan on prof- selling like tons and tons of seedlings. Yeah. Um, so I, I think my advice to, to you or to anyone who wants to get into growing bonsai is to identify exactly the end result that you want to create. So pick a tree off Michael's bench and say, I want to make 500 of these mm-hmm. and then re- like reverse engineer it. So if that, if that tree is a medium sized black pine, you think to yourself like, okay, I have to get a trunk that's three inches. How do I do that? And then simultaneously, how do I cut years off of the, you know, the process because right. if you're doing it on a, on a commercial scale and you, you don't want to just spend your whole life creating 150 trees. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, efficiencies and, and techniques that you might have to look into developing. So I would say the, the first thing, I think what a lot of people do who are even doing bonsai seriously, that can be a mistake is that they're not staying focused on a particular goal. I think it's, I think it's important for people to choose a goal and stay focused on that. And you can take Michael as an example with his uh, large batch of chojibai that he's doing. Uh, I think he's growing them in Anderson Flats. And last time I was there, he's the only person I can think of who is growing chojibai sort of on a commercial scale. And he's doing a really good job with it. And so with me, it's, I love exposed root. And if you want to go buy an exposed root, you don't really have a lot of good options. So, you know, just find a product and create it. And then people, like people don't even know that, you know, you can create something that people didn't even know they wanted and, mm. and then they, and then they'll want it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. True. Years ago, the best piece of advice I received about growing came from Eric, which was to grow trees in batches. And I still credit you with that phrase to this day. The idea is that if you have one or two of a given species, it's much harder to learn about how that species grows, how it responds to different techniques. And when you have five, 10, 20, 50, you know, or more trees, 
it gives you a much better opportunity to experiment, to learn how the tree responds to everything you do. And it increases the odds you're gonna end up with something good. Back to Eric's point about don't expect once you've wired a trunk once that it'll end up being a good tree or don't expect that if you take one you know tiny four inch tree home that you'll be able to turn it into a bonsai um, i think that's exactly right it will become an older tree but not necessarily the tree of your dreams without a little more effort um, you'd asked at the very beginning john about how i cull trees and i remember my first batch of pines was also around 100 or 120 seedlings and I ended up with 10 trees I was really happy with. And so I thought, well, not knowing anything about what I'm doing, I can expect one in 10 if the batch is big enough to come out okay. And so over the years, I've been able to increase those numbers, but the trick becomes, when do you give up on which ones along the way? Because you can save almost every single tree. It just might take a lot more time, a lot more effort. Right. And with some species, uh, you know, the Tochavai is a good example. Um, if we're not happy with it, we can cut it almost all the way to the ground and say, okay, we're going to use the root system and we're going to start all over, you know, but some things like maybe black pines aren't such, aren't so easy to restart after 10 years, you know. I actually tried that. I cut a pine off about a quarter inch above the ground, just on the off chance it sprouted and Every single listener will know the answer to whether or not that tree sprouted again. <laughs> I did the same thing with an old, uh, old blue oak, actually. Oh, it, that uh, was so sad. Yeah. It Dang. was like, you know, it was like a three foot tall tree with like a two inch trunk and no foliage in the, <laughs> in the bottom 2.75 feet. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, I thought, well, the base of the trunk looks fantastic. Let's just see what happens. And nothing. Nothing. We, we waited a year and a half, possibly. <laughs> right, right. Hoping, holding out hope. Yeah. Um, real quick, one other thing I had about the, uh, about the batch growing is what, uh, and I think we asked this in one of the previous uh, episodes, but what do you, do you do anything regarding record keeping or do you just try to, when you find success, do you just try to reverse engineer yourself <laughs> or do you have some sort of like, uh, record keeping that you can say, oh, the reason this succeeded was because I see that I did this. Yeah, no, I'm not very good at record keeping. Oh, shoot. To be with you. Nobody <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it, what it boils down to is that like you, over those years, you kind of, it's more like developing a sense of like a, a spidey sense for trees. Um, yeah. I think that you just, you start to, you have certain techniques that you use. I, I agree with you, uh, keeping records would be a good idea uh, because there are definitely things that I've created where I look back and I think to myself like, wait, now how, did, do I, how did I do that? And uh, the one that's irritating me right now is that I have a, a shoheen sized alcova that I grew from seed and it was part <laughs> of a batch, it, you know, it was part of a batch, but I think I got really poor seed germination in the batch and I ended up with maybe a half a dozen Zelkovas out of 50 seeds that I had sown. And so I took those half a dozen Zelkovas and did, you know, some different stuff with them. And a couple of them, I wired the trunk. So I didn't end up with the broom style, like what everyone is used to seeing Zelkovas grown into. Um, and I gave one to my friend Bernard and he still has his, and I still have one left of mine. I don't remember what happened to the other two or three or however many I had, but I also don't remember how I made my tree look the way that it 
looks and I would really like to grow some more because everybody loves them. Right. And Jonas and I were talking about this and he's like, yeah, I tried it. And, and I, I tried defoliating and I tried coming back and it just doesn't it, like, they're really hard to keep control of. And didn't, it just didn't seem like it was working. I'm growing a somewhat larger batch right now and really wishing that I had some records on what I did the first time and also wishing that Bernard had some records on what he did because his tree looks totally different than mine. Um, but, you know, obviously there's defoliation and cut regular cutback, but the, you know, the type of soil, all of these different factors that you can sort of explore. But um, the, the record keeping in that case would have been valuable because I, I, you know, it was only one tree in the end and I don't remember exactly how I made it. So now I get to sort of re-explore that um that process and see if i can replicate the result without actually remembering the steps that i took right right well on that note of failed growing uh what is it that you see in people growing trees that you would love to never see again are there any habits or patterns or mistakes that you just wish would be banishable so we wouldn't have to see them again (laughs) or things that are really getting in the way of people's uh progress in terms of these long-term projects well i mean i think back to back to your point about uh my point which is growing things in batches i think actually that's one of the things that i don't see people doing that if we could convince everyone and i'm not just talking about professionals i'm talking about everyone if you could get everyone who grows bonsai to grow back in batches of 15 to 30 trees instead of in onesies and twosies the the level of knowledge would just start to rise really quickly uh, around the growing techniques because you know in the last in the last few years I feel like we've started to get a much more broad idea of what's going on in Japan instead of just having access to a few magazine articles and whatnot we have you know trained people coming back and we have you know access to people on Instagram and that kind of stuff and so we're seeing a lot of really good techniques and now what we need to see is people actually using those techniques to execute batches of trees here in the US. I think that's a fantastic idea for a campaign. It's too bad grow trees in batches. GTIB isn't a very good acronym, but <laughs> the uh, it, growers have so long to catch up and growing high quality material is almost always going to be cost or time prohibitive to commercial growers and so you're right if everyone started growing a couple dozen of this or that here and there we'd have fantastic material in another uh, few years right now i think most of the best trees are being made by hobbyists in their backyards and typically very few people know about it but uh pretty much the best pine growers i know are doing it as backyard concerns and they're doing really high quality work but on a very small scale Mm. yeah i mean beyond the scale of you know 20 or 30 trees things really start to get prohibitive for most people i think you know you just for people who have colder winters they then need like a full-on greenhouse to protect the trees or you know most people don't have yards that are large enough to uh to house large numbers of trees during their lanky teenage years right right That's a great point. But you also snuck in another really good point, which is there is so much more information out there, whether in print or online, about bonsai techniques. To date, there has been 
pitifully small amounts of information ever shared about the growing process. It must be the least sexy or least interesting topic there is, according to publishers, because we've all memorized Bonsai Today number 20 primarily and number 12 <laughs> secondarily 12, right. are the two growing issues. There are lots of one-off issues that have had much less impact on the world. Here's how to do Zelkova, here's how to do a seedling cutting for Stewartia. And all of the big marquee articles are always, look, we're starting with a trunk that someone either found in a garden or pulled off a mountain. And uh, so it's really, and all the people getting trained in Japan, the apprentices are by and large not learning the first thing about how to develop material. I know Peter T is one of a tiny number of people who actually worked in a garden where they were responsible for actually building trees. And until we get more people studying the building of trees, it's really on every one of us to just keep experimenting, keep playing around and keep growing things and share what we can figure out along the way. I believe after all this, we may have kept you long enough, Eric. Are there any other parting shots you want to share with the wide world? I think it's been great. I uh, look forward to uh, continuing the conversation, looking up the podcast, uh, listening myself. Yeah, I think we look forward to like having some round uh, roundtable discussions about growing. Uh, you know, maybe we can get on more often. Maybe pull a few more people in just to just to try to keep this alive. Because I think, like Jonas said, um, you know, a lot of people are doing a lot of little things in their backyard and trying to, you know, just experimenting. Because I think that's what people need to be doing is just experimenting. And so, yeah, it'd be nice to pull you back in on a on some other uh, kind of roundtable growing discussions just to see what's happening in the real world yeah absolutely well thanks so much for joining and uh for all of you listening tell a friend check out bonsaiwirepodcast.com and we'll see you in the next episode yeah thanks Eric. thank you Music on today's podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue. Also, the advertisements are fake. So those pearls of wisdom are just kind of gone to the sands of time.